life and his old age. And, you know, as we've been through Ecclesiastes, Solomon's been taking away more often than he's been giving. But overall, what he's given amounts to a whole lot more than he's taken away. He's, uh, throughout, throughout the book, he's been taking inventory on everything under the sun, and he said that it's all vanity. In the first several chapters, he's taken away our empty pleasures and shown us that they don't satisfy. He's taken away our foolish arguments, shown us that the world only makes sense if we acknowledge that God exists and that he is in control. And overall, he's shown us the world we live in under the sun is broken and tragic and inexplicably wicked. He's sobered us up from our intoxication with the world, and he's, he's removed our rose-colored glasses so that we can see ourselves and see the world for what it really is. And he only does that, remember, so that we'll look up, so that we'll see what's above the sun. We've said several times throughout this whole series, right, that all that's under the sun is not all there is. All that is is not under the sun. And so Solomon lifts our gaze up to our creator and to his sovereignty, and we begin to see the world differently and understand our existence and our purpose in life differently. He forces us to consider life and death, and he reminds us we're all going the way of dust. No matter how hard we try to avoid it or ignore it, we all meet the same end. And he said before, it doesn't doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, if you're wise or a fool, we all go the way of dust. We all die. So Solomon has taken away what 1 John calls the boastful pride of life. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. So Solomon has stripped us down throughout the book. He's, He's pointed out our our white-knuckled death grip on life under the sun. And he's shown us that it won't last, and it won't even satisfy while it does last. That's what he takes away. But here's what he gives. He gives hope and a confidence in what is not vanity and what is not passing away, but what is immovable and eternal. Without hope of eternal life and confidence in the one true and living God who is all good and all powerful, We have every reason to be terrified of this place. If there is no God, and if he's not in control, if he's not in the business of redeeming and bringing ultimate justice, we have nothing to live for. The only purpose left for living, then, is avoiding pain and death until it comes for us anyway. The main idea of the message this morning before we hop into our text is this, fear God, not death. Fear God, not death. Don't live life fearing death. Live life fearing God. Now, I have two points for you this morning. I'll give them to you now. First, live like you are dying because you are. And two, live like you will live forever because you will. Let's read this final chapter of this wonderful book. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent 
and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, I pray that as I stand here, uh, a, a broken man, Lord, that you would, you would delight in using me to bring this word to bear on the hearts and minds of your people this morning. So move me out of the way, Lord. Speak to your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon's instructions really clear here in the first eight verses. Live near to God while you're living, while you're still walking amongst us, right? Don't put it off until old age. You don't know how long you'll live. Live near to God now, knowing that you will live with him forever. And he starts out advising the youth in the beginning, right? He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And that word for remember in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's a lot stronger than merely recalling something, right? It's not just calling something to memory. It means consider carefully. You know, like in the fourth commandment, when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't just remember, oh yeah, that's a thing, Right? Don't just remember it, consider it, regard it, think about it, be mindful of it. Same thing here. Think about and be mindful of your creator in your youth. Why does he say that? Because when we're young, we kind of think we're invincible, don't we? You know, we, we don't think about death because it's so far off, but we don't know that. We don't know, you don't know it's far off. Or when you're young, you think you can worry about all that religion stuff later. There's, there's time to think about those things. It doesn't matter as much now. I don't really need to depend. I don't feel like I need to depend on God. Solomon says, don't be so foolish. You are dependent on him, even as a youth. Live like you're dying because you are. Do it now. Remember him. Consider him. Regard him. Be mindful of him now before the evil days come, he says at the end of verse 1. He says, in the years of your life draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. 
You know, don't wait until you get to a point in your life where you realize things have not panned out the way that you'd hoped before you turn to God and ask for help and direction. That, that's kind of our tendency, though, isn't it? We, we go to God as sort of a last resort when we're in panic mode. We wait until things get bad before we go to God. Here's the lie. Here's the lie of the devil that God warns about here. And it's a lie I think we as Westerners especially are really prone to believe, okay? Is that youth is for pleasure, age is for productivity, and old age is for religion. Give your best years to the devil and give God what's left. There's time for religion later. Right now, let's have fun. You know, religion's of no real use to the young, in Proverbs 6, Solomon says this to, to young people especially. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come on you like a robber and your want like an armed man. That's instruction against general laziness, right? That, that, that to avoid material poverty. But I think it applies to spiritual poverty too. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you begin to take God seriously? When your life is finally a mess and you no longer have the youthful strength and vigor to be of any service to God? We have to live like we're dying because we are. Long days are not promised to us, and so we have to make the most of each day and not be putting it off, putting it off, procrastinating. I've heard it said recently, I like this quote, procrastination is the arrogant assumption that God will give you another opportunity to do tomorrow what he gave you the chance to do today. Verse, verses 2 through 5, Solomon talks about the general wearing out process of old age. And, and you, you read this here, and you've got to remember this is, this is poetic, sort of poetic metaphors of decay. That's what we're looking at here. I'll go through them one at a time. He says that the strong men are bent. And you, you can imagine how we kind of slump over when we get older, don't we? Right? When we're young and we're strong, right? We used to be able to stand up straight, shoulders back, chest out, right? And then we kind of crumple up as we get older. And you see grinders cease because they are few. There's teeth, right? We're missing some teeth when we get older, especially them, right? They didn't have, they have dental plans and fill cavities and stuff like that. And it's a chore to even chew food with few teeth, you know? And he says, those who look through the windows are dimmed. Our eyes are the windows that we look out at the world, are they not? And the eyesight begins to fade. The doors on the street are shut. How many opportunities for employment and friendships and new relationships do older people have compared to younger people. Our, our, our opportunities, our, our social status begins to diminish. Opportunities are fewer and doors that were once open to us are closed as we get into sort of the twilight of life. Rising up at the sound of the birds, sleep is easily interrupted. A couple more metaphors for age in here, just going through them. Daughters of song brought low, hearing isn't so good. Everything just gets kind of quiet. Afraid of what is high. 
having an un, unsure, uh, unsteady gait, not being so sure-footed anymore, frightened by the tears in the way. As we get older, we become increasingly more vulnerable to attack, you know. Uh, certainly for these people, if they, you know, if they had to go somewhere, it was probably a walk, and walking alone, somebody could be, you know, around a corner somewhere and jump out and snatch them and beat them up and take advantage of their vulnerability, of their lack of strength. The almond tree blossoms, those are white, white hair. The grasshopper that used to leap and bound around drags itself, he says, and desire fails. Desire begins to fail because of an awareness we're at the end. So there you go. Sounds like a party, doesn't it? My dad always tells me as he's beginning to feel his age, getting old isn't for sissies. It's rough. Living to a ripe old age, as Abraham and David did, means living long enough to see evil days and living through these years of which you will say, I don't really have any pleasure in them. I don't like limping around and waking up in the night and feeling all used up. So how much more then should we value our youth? Remember your creator and your youth. I'm talking to, I suppose, teens through 30-somethings now, especially. Not exclusively, but especially. Your youth is better off being invested rather than spent. You know, Bryson, that doesn't mean be an old man while you're a young man, okay? A few weeks ago, we saw Solomon says, be young while you're young. But don't live as though there's no time for religion later. There's not. You don't know that. Don't, don't put it off. Cultivate godly disciplines now and spend time with God before you feel like you need him. Remember your creator and your youth. If you don't, all you have to look forward to under the sun is this inevitable decay that he's just illustrated. There's more to life than that. There really is more to life than that, and it's worth pursuing now. Live like you're dying because you are, but live like you'll live forever because you will. Verses 6 through 7, we see now there's this picture of release from this agony of old age Solomon's just illustrated. It's a release that's either good or bad, though, right? That our, our, our souls leave our broken and worn-out bodies, and they go on to be somewhere else forever. And the metaphor he uses here is a, is a cord, a bowl, a pitcher, a wheel. These are all vital for drawing water into a cistern. And when, they, when they've worn out and they're broken and they don't work anymore, there's no more drawing life into the cistern of the body. Verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. We just talked about this uh, Wednesday night at the Backyard Bible Club with the kids. Uh, when Adam was first formed from the earth, right? He was, he was formed from the dust of the earth. God uh, breathed life into his nostrils. And when Adam sinned, God told him, cursed is the ground because of you. And God informs him of the curses that are on him as a result of his sin, and he says, he will live with those curses until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that's what Solomon's talking about here, obviously. And the body's left behind, the, the soul returns to God who gave it. And here's, here's where this release of the body from the soul is, is either a good or a bad thing. 
as I said. The soul returns to God for judgment. The soul returns to God for judgment. You can't sin against an eternal God and die once. That's not enough. And what God intends to last forever, the soul, doesn't just end. It was never meant to. So judgment is eternal, and if your soul returns to God stained with sin rather than being stained with the blood of Christ that atones for sin, the soul returning, leaving your body and returning to God will not be a happy day. You know, you notice this a lot. We, we often wish people into heaven that we know good and well probably won't be there. And, and we do that because we want to be sensitive to somebody who's mourning the loss of somebody that they love. But y'all, I think when we do that, we're encouraging the same thing Solomon's warning about here. Don't worry about that God stuff till later. There's still time. But no, there's not. It, we, we have to live like we're dying because we are, and we have to accept the fact and, and, and deal with the fact that we are not meant to just die once and, and that's it. We have to consider eternity, all of us. Our souls will live forever. All right, moving on, verses 9 through 14. We get a recognition, sort of a stamp of approval. Uh, um, we, we have a recognition of who these words are coming from. Not just Solomon, but from God himself. They are given by one shepherd, Solomon says in verse 11. So he's taking credit as being the one that authored this book, but he's also giving credit, recognizing that this has come from, from on high. Some people uh, say these verses, by the way, in this last part of the passage, that they're a later edition by some editor or something, that it would be odd for Solomon to have written about himself in the third person, but that's, that's really not uncommon at all in, in the ancient Near East. And, and you think about the way he opens the book of Proverbs. He says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. David opens a lot of his Psalms you know, a Psalm of David. Uh, you know, Moses talks about himself all the time in the third person, in the first five books of the Bible. We've said before this was likely written toward the end of Solomon's life, and so he's just looking back. He's seen a lot of things. He's done a lot of things. Some of them good, a lot of them bad. And he's, he's imparting this, this wisdom to people who are still in the thick of it, right? They've got some life left to live. He sees his own years coming to an end, and he wants... Uh, to see people that still have life ahead of them, learn from his own experience. And his conclusion is, and has been throughout the book, fear God and keep his commandments. So we know from verses 9 through 14, these are words and sayings of Solomon, but they're also the words and sayings given by Jesus himself, who is himself wisdom. These collected sayings are given by one shepherd. It's the very word of God, all of it, all of it. He's closing the book saying, you know, consider everything we've gone through. Now look back and I want you to, I want you to pick up on something. Don't miss it. This is the very word of God. All of it is, all of scripture is, right? It's all God breathed. You know, it's not just the, the, the red letters in, in the New Testament, but all, all of Ecclesiastes that we're finally coming to, to the end of here. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God will be equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy, right? 
Peter emphatically tells us in 2 Peter, he says, know this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know Solomon's not just blowing smoke here. We can believe what he says. We can know that this wisdom has been imparted on us over these past 12 chapters, that it's authorized by God himself. And so then it is true, it is useful, and it is instructive for us. Fear God and keep his commandments, this being one of them, (laughs) right? Fear God and keep his commandments. So what he does here, he describes these words in verse 11, and then he qualifies them in verse 12. He tells us what they're like, what these words are like, and then he tells, them, tells us what, what, what they're worth, right? He, he, he describes these words as, as goads and nails, and then he tells us that they're better than other words. Goads and, goads and nails. Go, goads, you guys know what a goad is? Uh, first time I came across this in the Bible, I had to look it up, just being honest. I don't know. That wasn't, that wasn't in my vocabulary test in school or something. But it's like, it's like a, a prodding tool, right? A prod things along, like dumb sheep like us, right? A, a, a goad is for prodding. And nails, they pierce. And uh, we allow the wisdom of God's word to poke us, to pierce us. That's what it does. It interrogates our hearts. You know, at King's Church, we're committed to to teaching and preaching the full counsel of God's word faithfully. And sometimes that means getting your feelings hurt. And it's certainly not my intention, it's not the intention of the leaders in the church here. It's not God's intention to hurt your feelings, but you know, the reality is the sin of pride and selfishness causes us to react to God's word that way sometimes, doesn't it? It just does. I'm borrowing a phrase here, if I could remember who who, who said it, I would, but just so you know, I'm borrowing, uh, but said the, the preached word should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. It should comfort the afflicted. It should afflict the comfortable. And y'all, I, I would argue the reason we have so many nominal Christians today, people who are, who are Christian in name only, who have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who have not experienced the, the new birth, is, is because they have preachers that just keep them comfortable. You know, you got to think, that's, there's safety in that. There's certainly job security in that, keeping people comfortable. But what we end up with, you know, we, we talked months ago, didn't we foster those statistics that we saw come out of, of just your average Joe Christian and sort of their knowledge and understanding of the Bible and sin and their need of, of salvation? What we, what we end up with as a result of this, y'all, is we have churches that are full of people who are full of themselves. We, we want to be a church that's full of the Spirit, don't we? And, you know, best I can tell from Scripture, that doesn't happen by, by convincing you week in and week out that you've got it all together or making sure you leave here with some warm and fuzzy feelings, right? No, you leave here... You leave here loving God and knowing what it is that he's done for you. You're supposed to leave here feeling good about God, his love, his mercy, and you can't know his love and mercy unless you know your great need of it. We're great sinners with an even greater Savior. 
Praise God that he's better at saving than we are at sinning. That's how you love God. And you know, we praise God for his word, for the goads, for the nails. We praise him that he shoots straight with us, right? That his words are like these goads and nails so we can see ourselves for what we really are. We can see the world for what it really is and we can run to him for forgiveness, for, for a true sense of security, for, for satisfaction, for guidance, for assurance. He is the source of those things. And his word is the goad and the prod and that, that pushes you in, in his own direction, so Solomon describes what these words are like. They're like goads and nails. And he qualifies them. He says, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Are books bad? Is that what he's saying? Don't read anything about the Bible. Is that what he's saying? Is studying bad? You know, are there, are, are there things that we can learn about the world and stuff outside of Scripture? Sure. Are there things outside of Scripture that can help us better understand Scripture? Sure. But we cast anchor here, right? We cast anchor here. Beware of anything beyond these. Beware of being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. Paul says in Ephesians 4, these are words you can count on, Solomon says. That's what kind of words these are. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. It outlasts everything else. These words never expire. They are always relevant and never outdated. God's words are instructive, and they are to be regarded above all other instruction, as Solomon's point, because they don't just give us good advice, right? We can get some good advice out here somewhere. What we get here is so much better than good advice. It's good news. Here's the, uh, the assurance that we have that God's word gives us. We realize we have no reason to fear death. We have every reason to fear God. Listen to these words from Isaiah 46. This is what God says. Okay? Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. If Jesus is yours and you are his, if he is your hope and satisfaction, now I'm talking to the, the ones with the less hair and what you have left is gray, Okay? If Jesus is yours and you are his, if he is your hope, then being gradually clothed with old age is hastening you to an immortal immortal physical youthfulness, an immortal physical youthfulness. Remember, we're Christians. We're not Gnostics, right? It's that physical part. Remember Gnostics? We talked about them a little bit in Colossians this past winter. We, you know, we're Christians. We, we, we don't believe that the, the spirit is good and the body is bad. We, we don't believe that the good and important stuff is trapped inside of this, this evil cage of our flesh. It's not what we believe. We believe even our flesh will be redeemed and our souls will be rejoined with our bodies in the final resurrection. We will rise again and our bodies will be made perfect one day and they will never wear out. The knee will get better, Dad. 
We'll have all the energy, y'all. We'll have all the energy and physical ability and desire to do whatever pleases us. And the only thing that will please us is what pleases our master most because sin will cease to be. It'll be out of the way. Live life unfettered, unchained, unburdened in the way that he intends for us to in perfect harmony and union with him. And don't you see, don't you see then how that life, hope of that life, thoughts about eternal life begin to shape and change our understanding of this life? Do you see how one reads into the other? Doesn't this life appear to matter so much more in light of that reality? We can, we can honestly say with Paul then, can't we? Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? We, we can believe Jesus when he says, do not fear man who can kill the body only, but fear God who can kill the body and soul. We don't live life fearing death. We live life fearing God. I'm not saying we should look forward to death. Are you tracking? I'm saying, you know, if, that's, if that's you this morning, you're like, I'm not really looking forward to death. You're in good company, okay? That's natural. That's not at all what I'm saying. Jesus wasn't looking forward to death. Do, do you remember, uh, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He wasn't looking forward to death. Now, he had a lot more on the line than we do, right? He was about to suffer uh, at, the, at the hands of men, a gruesome death, and suffer the wrath of God for, for my sin, for, for his sin, and, and your sin, and her sin over there, and the sin of everybody that he came to save. But he wasn't looking forward to death. And you know why he could do it? He knew death would not hold him down. He knew that he would rise again and be with his Father forever. So my question for y'all this morning, y'all, is do you have that same hope? Do you have that same hope and confidence that you will rise again from the dead and be with God forever? And if you don't, maybe, maybe you haven't realized you don't until this morning. That's fine. I just don't want you to leave here without that assurance. The fact of the matter is, you have offended God that's just real. You have offended God. And the same one who will sit on that throne of judgment when your soul leaves your body is the same one who hung on a cross to take that judgment. Every word you've said, every, every, every thought you've had, everything you've done that offends God, he, he will bring it into judgment, bring it before the throne. And if Christ died for you, the same one who is your judge is your Savior. And there's no judgment for you. You catch that? It's simple, but somehow we have a hard time wrapping our minds around it. You know, we think we got it, and then we realize we don't. We don't really get the gospel. Do you get that, y'all? Do you understand that the same one who is your judge is your Savior? That all of your sins, it, it is finished. Judgment's not waiting for you if you are in Christ. Okay? You know... You, you, you come before Jesus, you come before the judge, and he knows he died for your sin. What judgment is there for you? There's none. Do you know the freedom that affords you in this life and the impact that can have on you, your family's lives, for generations, and the people around you? 
That's freedom. There is no judgment for you. There's no condemnation. You don't have to look at an offended God with terror, but a reconciled God with reverence and respect and undying affection. You fear God and keep his commandments. That fear, that reverential awe, understanding who it is that you are in Christ. That's how you live life. Now I'll wrap up there since that's where Solomon wraps up. He says, his, he says he's said his piece. Verses 13 through 14, he says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We live in a crazy, mixed-up world. And what we learn from Ecclesiastes is, is the truth of that, but we also have seen time and time again that God is not asleep at the wheel. He really does and really will right all wrongs. He redeems what is lost. And we come to grips with the fact we do. We live short and unpredictable lives that pass away like a vapor. But God gives us something we can count on, and it's his word. It's him and his word. And he gives us hope and assurance that all that is is not under the sun. There's so much more. And we should live life as though that were true. It's another one of those things that just sounds so simple. But y'all meditate on that this week. Okay? Living as though that were true. Living as though that were true. Not coming to this just, just to kind of check in, right? I know we're doing the Bible reading plan. It's been awesome, you know. Um, people engaging God in his word regularly and together collectively as a church, it's, it's fantastic. And you check that little box, and it's good that you check the box. It's good to stay on track. It's good to have something to aim at. That's excellent, right? But don't let your Christian life just be checking a box, you know? We don't just tag up with God and check in with him and call it done for the day. What does it mean, y'all, to live as though it were really true? What could happen? What could happen in your life? What could happen in your marriage? That's Ecclesiastes, y'all. Raw, real, painfully truthful, unapologetically blunt, but beautiful and full of hope. And that's what God wants you to be, beautiful and full of hope radiating his glory in a fallen world and giving hope of a kingdom that never ends and trust in a savior king who never fails. A king that not even death could destroy and who has cut a path into eternity for you so that you can follow in his footsteps. The way is clear. The way is clear. So don't fear death but do let us fear him and keep his commandments. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for this sweet book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for being honest with us, for shooting us straight, for not only saving us, but giving us your word to instruct us how to think and how to live and how to have hope in a crazy mixed up world. 
Lord, we love you and ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would teach us to love you and one another more so we can be more like Jesus. Take us where you would have us go. Lead us and make us faithful and obedient to follow. For the good of your church and your kingdom and to the glory of your name. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.